Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter, chapter 5. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Romans together. We come to chapter 5. We'll look specifically at verses 9 through 11 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. They'll put a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage we're studying this morning for your convenience. And then on behalf of all of us, if you don't own a Bible, please make a Bible a gift from us to you this morning. We pick things up one verse earlier than what we'll be studying in earnest this morning, and that is verse 8, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if we were if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, the reconciliation. And that's what we'll study today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not only provided mankind and provided us with the Bible, but you have come into our lives as Christians and provided us with the very author, the very teacher of the book, to be our teacher. And we thank you that we never need to turn to the Bible apart from your Holy Spirit and the revelation and the illumination that he brings. And we ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning in a fresh way, with a fresh sensitivity to what your Holy Spirit wants to speak through these verses to each one of us. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that uh, chapter 5 of the book of Romans begins with the words, uh, therefore having been justified by faith. And so Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 11 is a, written specifically to those who are already Christians, and it is, uh, lists a description of all of the blessings that are ours as Christians uh, that go way beyond the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins would have satisfied me. That's a priceless gift from God. But our salvation didn't just bring the forgiveness of sins into our life as Christians. But how that upon, as Paul lays out here, upon trusting in Jesus for salvation, not only were we justified uh, so that when God now looks at us as Christians, he sees us just as if we'd never sinned. That's how thorough the forgiveness is, that when he looks, he no longer sees our sin attached to us. But that as we have seen, that God has already provided, also provided us with 
peace with God, verse 1, as we studied that. Access to God, verse 2, a glorious hope. The absolute confidence at the end of this life, we will one day be in heaven. Again, verse 2. Godly character, verses 3 through 5, how it is that this Christian life uh, forces us to develop character that we would never otherwise develop uh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you, I, I hate to think about the, the shallow, petty person I would be if my life was left in my own hands and I hadn't become a Christian and then the uh, coach of the Holy Spirit forcing me to grow in ways that I would never force myself to do it. One of the great gifts of the Christian life is the godly character that becomes a part of our lives. As he lists the, continue listing the blessings in verses 6 through 8, as we saw last time, uh, he speaks of this immovable confidence that we are to have in the love of God for us. And then this morning, we want to examine the final two blessings that Paul lists in these 11 verses. And the first one in verses 9 and 10, how it is that we've been saved from wrath uh, because of our faith in Jesus. And then second, in verse 11, that we've been reconciled to God. You notice in 9 and 10 that uh, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And this speaks of the fact that our faith in Jesus has uh, delivered us from ever experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve or the uh, judgment uh, that our sin deserves. And so what wrath exactly is he talking about here that we've been saved from? Uh, two forms of wrath he's referring to here. First, that we've been saved from the wrath that God will pour out upon the entire world at a time that is known as the Great Tribulation Period, a seven-year period of God judging the world following uh, the removal of the church and what is known as the rapture of the church, judging the world for its rejection of him and the rejection of his uh, son. And that Great Tribulation Period period is described in some depth in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And I don't think it's a bad thing for a Christian to do every once in a while to read Revelation chapters uh, 6 through 19 and to realize that all that is listed there, all of those bowls, all of those uh, 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 vials, all of the, uh, the seals, all of that judgment was coming my way. It's going to be if, if I was alive as a, in the world, apart from Christ, at the time that it occurs, every single bit of that was coming my way as a human being, as it will come upon a, a particular generation in human history. But to know that because of our faith in Jesus, we have been delivered from that, and we will never experience the, the word of God teaches that as Christians, we're not appointed to God's wrath. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and it's important to realize this. Paul wrote, uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because the great tribulation period is the wrath of God being poured out upon the world, and we as Christians are not appointed under wrath, we must be removed from the world 
prior to the pouring out of that judgment, again in this uh, biblical event known uh, as uh, the rapture. And so every Christian will will be removed prior to that judgment. And why is it that we're not appointed uh, to God's wrath concerning our sins as Christians? It's because that Jesus has uh, already borne the wrath that our sins uh, deserved. And uh, he bore that wrath upon the cross. I think that Peter puts it most succinctly and perfectly in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 24, who, speaking of Jesus, said, who himself bore, and that word is very important, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. It's so important for us as Christians to realize that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he did not cancel the wrath that our sin uh, deserved. He did not get us off on some kind of a technicality. The reason that we are forgiven and free related to the wrath that our sin deserves uh, here in each of our lives today is that Jesus bore the full wrath that my sin and your sin deserved. He bore it fully and he bore it completely And having done so, uh, we can never then be called upon uh, by God uh, to then bear that judgment or that wrath ourselves. And all of this is exposed in and what is known in legal circles, both in ancient times and also today, as double jeopardy. Not talking about, uh, you know, the show, but it's a legal term. There is, uh, this principle is a part of our United States Constitution. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution has what is known as the Jeopardy Clause, which prohibits the government from uh, prosecuting individuals more than one time for a single offense and from imposing more than one punishment for a single offense. It provides, and I quote, that no person shall be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. And this doctrine of double, double jeopardy appears to have originated not in the, in the uh, United States Constitution, but a, a part of ancient Roman law in the principle as it's translated from uh, the Latin, a, an issue once decided must not be raised again. And the purpose of the double jeopardy clause is to protect the defendant who has been acquitted on a criminal charge from having to stand trial again for the same crime. And how it applies to us as Christians is this, is because God has chosen to acquit us of our sins, our crimes against him, and against the law of Moses, on the basis of the fact that Jesus has borne the penalty our sins deserved, he will never charge us with those same sins again. It cannot happen, and it will not happen. And to that I say, hallelujah. The second great wrath that we are protected from by virtue of our faith in Jesus 
is that we have been saved from the wrath, uh, uh, God's wrath against sin in terms of eternal judgment. No Christian is ever in danger of one day dying and ending up in eternal judgment or in hell or in an eternal lake of fire where uh, a rejection of God's Son is, is what ends up landing people in that place. And the reason that we are, will never, ever face that is because of Jesus and our faith in him. Think about the weight that is taken off of our shoulders to know that our eternities are secure, that we will one day be in heaven as Christians, and that we are at no risk, zero risk, less than zero risk of ever ending up in eternal judgment, in eternity. Well, I don't know what that, uh, it, it, that great fact means uh, to the world uh, anymore, but I think if anybody takes eternity seriously, if anyone believes in the fact that there is an afterlife, if anyone believes that there's a heaven and a hell after this life, to know that there is no possibility that I will end, ever end up in hell, but that I am 100% guaranteed to get into heaven, and that on the basis of a faith in Christ, that takes a tremendous load off of us. I don't know how many people in the world believe in heaven and hell or an afterlife anymore. I don't even know how many Christians believe in it anymore. But I will say for any Christian that believes in it, believes in the reality of a heaven and the reality of a hell, to know that one day we are in no jeopardy of ever ending up in hell or in that uh, place of eternal judgment is to have something wonderful and awesome lifted off of our hearts and lifted off of our uh, lives. For you lawyers and uh, legal professionals, and really any of us, you notice in, in verse 10 that Paul argues this argument from what is known as arguing from the greater uh, to the lesser. Notice verse 10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved uh, by his life. In other words, if God has already done the harder thing in our lives, if God has saved us while we were sinners, while we were in rebellion against him, while we were his enemies, then how much more will he accomplish the easier thing, uh, the lesser thing, by and save us from future wrath now that we are his children? And the reason that Paul writes all of this to us is he is, you know, line upon line, layer upon layer here, he is trying trying to establish in every one of our hearts as Christians the absolute solidness of our salvation, the absolute sureness and security of our salvation as Christians. Not because of who and what we are or are not in a month's time or in a moment's time or day to day in our lives, but it is sure and is solid because of Jesus himself. Now, Paul closes this section celebrating the blessings of uh, justification with what he refers to, and I think perfectly so, in the final two words of, of verse 11, uh, a, a, the celebration of the reconciliation, the reconciliation. 
And Paul uses some form of the word reconciliation in verses 10 and 11 uh, three times. And so somehow this reconciliation that he's talking about here, uh, whatever it is, is very important to him and it's very important that we understand it uh, as well. And it is, in fact, I think, the greatest of all of the blessings of justification. What he describes when he talks about this reconciliation is the greatest of all of the blessings that are a part of our salvation as Christians. I think he has literally saved the very, very best for last in his uh, thought processes here and what he's trying to declare in verses 1 through 11. The technical meaning of the word reconciliation is important to understand. Our English word reconciliation comes from two Latin words. Uh, the first Latin word is re, which means back, and then the second word is conciliare, which means uh, bring together. And so reconciliation means to bring back together. What it speaks about is the reestablishment of a personal relationship uh, after that relationship has been broken, after it's been disrupted in some way. And, and that's what he's talking about here. You've got a relationship, and it was at one time healthy, it was at one time strong, and now it has been disrupted, it has been broken. And that's what, uh, in, in that broken relationship is what the, the aim of this reconciliation is all about, bringing that back together. I do like those two words that end verse 11, and I'd like you to look at them and see those two words, the reconciliation. And I think that word the is worth circling, at least in our minds, and maybe even circling uh, right there in our Bible. Because the reconciliation, the single greatest reconciliation of, uh, of a relationship in life, and Paul is talking about it here, has to do with our reconciliation with God. I think that we've all experienced uh, this in the course of our life, where a person might have a personal, close personal relationship with someone, there's a falling out in that relationship over some issue. We then become estranged uh, with that person, and then uh, we then reconcile the relationship after a time. And all of those things are reconciliations. They're important ones. But they're not as important as being reconciled with God. That's why this one is called the reconciliation. It's the most important reconciliation anyone will ever experience in life. Here Paul speaks of what is the single greatest blessing of our salvation. And the single greatest blessing of our salvation is that it allows us to be reconciled to God. It allows us to have a personal relationship with God. And Christianity is, above everything else, all about a relationship with God, a personal relationship with Him. The Bible speaks of this from one end to the other. Let me give you a couple of verses to think about. I'll read them to you. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, he described Jesus, verse 10, in this way, He was in the world. 
and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, relationship to those who believe in his name. Later in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus spoke and he declared, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him, relationship, and make our home with him. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus famously uh, declared, come to me, relationship, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus himself declared, I am the vine, you are the branches, relationship. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And then you go to the final book of the entire Bible, Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, what Jesus declared to the church of Laodicea, and he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him and he with me. Relationship. Now, very often you will hear someone, uh, typically a Christian, describe Christianity in this way. They will say Christianity is not a religion, but it is a relationship with God. And that statement is absolutely true in that it emphasizes the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and he was buried, and he rose again on the third day, not to supremely to supply the world with another religion, not supremely uh, to produce some great religious structure or organization that would then become the supreme focus of each of our lives uh, as Christians, the great focus of our, our love and our attention. But he died on the cross for our sins, was buried, rose again on the third day to bring us into a relationship with him, the very relationship that we, each of us, have been created for. But I don't want to leave it there because there is a sense in which the statement that Christianity is not a religion, but it is not entirely true because our English word uh, religion comes from a Latin word that literally means to link. And in that sense, a true understanding of what religion means and where the word came from, uh, Christianity not only is a religion, but it is the only religion in the entire world in the truest sense of, of the word because only Christianity provides a link between God and man, the capacity for us to have relationship with him. And thus Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And when he said that, he did not say that to boast. He said it as a simple statement of fact related to salvation, a, a, a fact that is known and, 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 and unhindered or unopposed in heaven, uh, whatever it, it, it might be thought of here uh, in 
in the world. Now, this relationship is not only valued and, and enjoyed by us as Christians, but I think is a testimony to the greatness of God and the greatness of his grace. The Bible teaches that our relationship with God is actually meaningful to him. How awesome is that? That is an amazing thing to think about. When Jesus spoke the first of his seven letters to the seven churches, and they're recorded as he spoke them to the apostle John, and they're recorded in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. The very first letter that he dictated to be sent to was to the church in Ephesus. And his description of Ephesus was uh, really something. He, he declared them to be hardworking, and not hardworking to get a third car and a, and a nice home. The idea is that they were hardworking for the kingdom of God. Uh, he declared them to be doctrinally uh, pure. He said, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. He declared them to be persevering as Christians. They weren't soft Christians. They weren't quitters in the church at Ephesus. He said, you have persevered and have patience and have not become weary. Well, after this kind of commendation that Jesus gives to begin the letter, and imagine as it's being read there in the Sunday night service or whenever they met there, uh, in, in Ephesus, imagine how astonished they must have been when Jesus then confronted them in the letter with the words, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And the failure of the church at Ephesus was individually and as a church, their personal love relationship with God had been displaced, displaced by good things, but nonetheless displaced, displaced by Christian service, displaced by great doctrine, by a depth of knowledge of the Word of God, and displaced by the church. Now the church is, to the church, it's more important, the church is more important to the people than God is in a relationship uh, to him. And it's possible to do all of these great things and for a relationship with God to be neglected. I think that anybody that's ever served the Lord knows the possibility of this and how valuable the warning of Jesus to the church of Ephesus is. But Jesus didn't stop with, uh, you know, his confronting them with what it is that they had done wrong in leaving their first love, he then went on and he issued a warning to them. And he said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, and here it is, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And early in the book of Revelation, you have the seven lampstands that are listed there, each one of them representing a different of the seven churches of, of Revelation. And Jesus is described as walking in the midst of the lampstands. And when he talks about removing his lampstand from the church of Ephesus, the idea is not that they would lose their salvation, but that he would be forced to remove the fullness of his presence upon their lives individually and upon them uh, as a, a, a church. In other words, Jesus said, 
unless you get this corrected, unless you get this turned around, and unless you make a relationship with God the supreme focus of that church and the supreme focus uh, of, of your, your lives here, uh, he said, I'm going to remove the fullness of my presence upon uh, you. And that speaks something very important to us as Christians, because we face the same temptations even today. And what it tells us in terms of what we're looking at here this morning is that Jesus does not want to be known by a loveless church. That is, any church or any individual that allows its relationship with God to be buried or to be neglected or to be forgotten by anything else, even good things, uh, even by things like Christian service or perseverance or, or doctrinal depth and purity. And when a church that models Christianity to be something other than supremely about a relationship with God and equipping people and, uh, for that relationship with God, facilitating a depth of, uh, of in that relationship uh, with, with God when it ceases to, to do that and become uh, about something else, then Jesus says, I'm not going to bless that church. I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to advance that message. I'm not going to advance the influence of a single Christian or a single church that has gotten it upside down and is now going to model before the world that this is uh, uh, anything, uh, 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 that this is something other than uh, uh, supremely about a personal relationship with God because that's what Christianity is uh, uh, about. And to me, it is a profound warning that Jesus delivers to that church at Ephesus. And what it does, and the reason I bring it up this morning, is to emphasize and to make clear how meaningful this relationship with God is not only to us, but how meaningful it is even to him. Jesus saved us supremely for a relationship. It's not because he needed a religious workforce in the world uh, or any of the other things that were prone to allow to, to crowd the relationship out within our lives. He saved us for that relationship. Now, this word reconciliation in speaking of the reestablishment of a personal relationship that somehow has been broken uh, or somehow has been disrupted, it reveals the fact that at one time, uh, man's relationship with God was holy and it was healthy, but that something has occurred in human history to disrupt or to break that relationship. So there has to be a backstory to this reconciliation. There has to be a backstory to the word. We can never understand what in the world Paul is t talking about here if we don't understand the backstory to the word that he's, he's using here. And there is a backstory, and that backstory goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and it's called the fall of man, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve in the ancient uh, Garden of Eden. 
Adam and Eve were created for fellowship with God, relationship with God. Uh, God met with them, as the Bible declares, in the cool of the evening, fellowship with them. That was the whole uh, purpose of it. And then God had told them that of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So he says, here's the whole garden. Anything you want to eat, you can go ahead and eat that. I'm going to give you one prohibition. There is this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's in the midst of the garden, and you shall not eat of that, because in the day that you eat of it, you will surely uh, die. And the prohibition wasn't negative. I mean, it was negative in that it was a prohibition, but it, but it, it wasn't something that worked against Adam and, uh, Adam and Eve at all. The prohibition uh, concerning that tree was the means by which they could express their love toward God and, and to how much they valued their relationship with him. Without an option to obeying God, without the option of disobeying God, we have no meaningful way to express our love for God if there wasn't a choice. If the only choice was to simply love him and obey him, then we'd be like robots. There, there, it wouldn't be meaningful to him because we're not denying something in order to do it. And the prohibition was given in order that Adam and Eve could express their heart and and how much they value the relation with him. Well, we don't know how much time elapsed between Genesis 2, uh, chapters 2 and chapters 3, but the very next scene in terms of uh, the biblical narrative and account of, of everything is that Adam and Eve were uh, tempted by the serpent, by uh, Satan. Uh, they ate of the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God's commands. They sinned, and they experienced a death as a result. Not a physical death. I mean, our, our presence in this room right now is a testimony to the fact that they didn't die physically. But what happened is they experienced a spiritual uh, death. They lost the capacity for fellowship with God, the very thing, the greatest thing that they had been created for. And to me, you know, the evidence of the fall of man and that ancient Garden of Eden, it's all around us. It's all around us in the world and in the existence of death in the human condition. Uh, you look at the sinful condition of the world. You look at the sinful condition, fallen condition of man. It speaks to some catastrophe of, of brokenness that has happened in human uh, history. And we'll talk about all of those things another time as we make our way through the book of Romans. But I want to focus on uh, th this morning specifically on emptiness and loneliness as an evidence for uh, the fall because they speak directly to the loss of this relationship with God and because of their relationship with reconciliation. The Bible teaches that until we are reconciled with God, there will always be an emptiness in our lives. And here's why. I'll read to you Romans chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 10. 
John is describing a scene in heaven in which God is being uh, glorified. And the four and twenty elders fall down before him who sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things. And then here it is. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. And for thy pleasure they are and were created. It's an interesting uh, line in the song. And it teaches us that every single one of us in this room, every single person in the world, that we have been created for, the, for God's pleasure. And there are people that get, you know, troubled by that in some way. They want to fight against that as if it's some kind of a limiting factor in their life. I will not join their ranks, not me. I am thrilled, absolutely thrilled at the fact that my life can in some way bring pleasure to this great God and to his great heart. And each of us, we have been created to bring pleasure to God in a personal relationship with him. Now, the interesting thing about this is that since we've been created for relationship with God, until we're engaged in that relationship, until we are engaged in the single greatest thing that we have been created for, then there's always going to be this gnawing sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that there must be something more to life than I have experienced before we become a Christian uh, is that until we become a Christian, there is something more to life than I have experienced. And it's the most important thing, the very thing we've been created for, a relationship with God. It's been very well said that each of us has been born into this world with a cross-shaped hole in our hearts which nothing uh, can fill uh, with anything other than Jesus Christ himself. And that cross-shaped hole within our hearts, you can pour anything you want from the world. You can pour the entire world into that black hole, that spiritual black hole that exists in each one of us, and it will never make a dent in that emptiness. It will never make a, a, a dent in, in that, uh, uh, that, that great need. It will never satisfy it, it, it all. Only God can fill that hole, and only he can uh, satisfy and fill that emptiness. And thankfully, he's willing to do it, and he has made that possibility uh, uh, within a, a reach of all of us in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son. But also... Until we're rec reconciled with God, not only will there be an emptiness, a profound emptiness in our life, but our lives will be marked by a profound and, and deep loneliness in our lives because we have been created supremely for a relationship with God. We will always be lonely at our core. We will always be lonely in the deepest part of our heart until we enter into that relationship. 
I remember, uh, this always brings to mind when I think about this and, and how lonely life can be and, and the search for trying to, to uh, find a, 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 f- a fulfillment of this loneliness uh, somehow apart from God. And, and usually when we have a sense of this loneliness and we're not quite yet aware yet that only God can fulfill that loneliness in our lives, we endeavor to do it by virtue of, uh, you know, a long string of relationships in our life with other human beings. And I think in John chapter 4 about the woman at the well of Samaria, Jesus comes there to get a drink of water and they begin a discussion and it's a, a, a beautiful passage. I don't want to bring much out of it except to, to look at the woman that was there. She comes to the well at an odd time of the day because she's been ostracized by the village. And the, the, the account declares the fact that she, and as Jesus reveals to her, that she had been married five times. Now, listen, if you're a man or a woman and you've been married five times, you're a five-time divorcee, even within our culture, which is a very lax culture compared to the ancient culture, there's a stigma attached with that. But in the ancient culture, even of Samaria, the Jewish culture there, to be married and divorced five times would leave an incredible stigma upon you. But, it, but she didn't stop there. Uh, she took it even a step further. And now she's given up on marriage altogether as Jesus confronted her with it. And now she's just living with the guy that she's living with. And again, th- there's a, a diminishing stigma attached with that within our culture. But again, in that day, to be living with a man without uh, being married, I mean, a- again, an awful stigma uh, that would have been uh, uh, upon her and how she would have been viewed by the society around her. And here you have her... And she's just the prototype, the example uh, of, and she represents uncountable numbers of men and women all through human history who absolutely unaware uh, of the, the, that the loneliness in their life is due to a lack of a relationship with God, then try to find uh, that, uh, solve that issue of their loneliness in another human being. And, and that is going to be a, an absolute frustration. You can run through so many husbands, wives, relationships, whatever it is. If I come to any other human being on the face of the planet and expect them to become what only God can become and be within my life, uh, then I, I'm bringing an absolutely impossible expectation into that, uh, into that relationship. And to think that they could ever do that. And so we will. We'll, we'll roll through them one relationship uh, after another. And as a person then plows through relationship after another and another and another and another. And in complete ignorance until a person comes to a Bible study like this this morning and, and, and is told how God views what it is that they're searching for and tells them what it is that's at the end of their search. I don't condemn them. Uh, This is what you're going to do. It's a great longing within our heart for this relationship and and at the core of it, a relationship uh, with God and somehow just convinced that if I just find, you know, the right one, then this emptiness and this loneliness, it's going to be dispelled. And I want you to know that if you sit here today and you've got a long string of personal relationships within your life, 
where you realize under the, the revelation of what we're talking about here today, that in one relationship after another after another, you brought an expectation to that man or to that woman that only God can meet. And what a th wonderful thing it is to realize in the, the, the beauty of the revelation of the Word as we're looking at it here this morning, to realize that no human being can be to you what only God can be to you and fulfill you in a way that only God can and to satisfy you in a way that only God uh, can. If we find ourselves, I think C.S. Lewis with a classic quote in this regard, he said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And the, the great evidence, the great thing that is being communicated to us when we're disappointed in one relationship after another and they end in catastrophe one after the other, it is communicating to us that at our deepest core, uh, the solution to our loneliness is never going to be found in another human being supremely, but in a relationship with God. You know, on this subject of loneliness, I think that each of us knows what it's like to feel lonely and even to feel lonely in a crowd. I mean, how we ask ourselves, how can, how can I feel so lonely even in a crowd? because a crowd can never alleviate loneliness. Only relationship can alleviate loneliness within our lives. And I remember as a young boy, I used to listen to a lot of music, I had a little, uh, whatever volt radio it was, six, you know, the transistor radio to my ear, listening to KFRC and KYA, and uh, I just liked music. And uh, I don't know how many of you remember, but Dr. John, uh, Dr. Rose, uh, he was one of the DJs in the morning, and he had this shtick that he'd do, and he'd doing horns and all this thing about himself. And I just, and people loved the whole thing. I'm saying, play a song, play a song, play a song, play a song. And I remember one of the early kind of songs that I listened to that, uh, you know, spoke to. I recognized this loneliness in my own life as, as a very, very young person, as a child, as a, as a youth. And I, and I remember, and most people my age will remember the exploration of the subject, and I remember exploring it with the song but you'll remember the exploration of the subject by the Beatles in their song, Eleanor Rigby. I'm gonna sing it for you right now. And, uh, <laughs> but let me read a, a couple lines to you from it. It goes like this, Eleanor Rigby picks up the rice in the church where a wedding has been, lives in a dream, waits at the window, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door, speaking of her makeup. Uh, who is it for? All the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people. Where do they all belong? And when I listened to that as a boy, I, I wondered uh, about that. Yes, what is, the, what is the answer to that, to those questions, uh, Paul McCartney? He went on to write, and he said, Father McKinsey, writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear, no one comes near. Look at him working, darning his socks in the night when, there is no, when no, there's nobody there. What does he care? All the lonely people, where do they co all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Ah, look at all the lonely people. Ah, look at all the lonely people.
One of the interesting things about that song is that Paul McCartney won a Grammy for it in 1967. Uh, there, n- n- not one instrument on that song was played by a, a Beatle. It, every, all of the music was played uh, by an orchestra, not one note by any of the Beatles. But McCartney wrote it, and, and he won a Grammy. It came out in 1966. He won a Grammy in 1967 for the song. And you think about the Beatles, those of you who are familiar with them. Uh, I mean, you think, look at all of the songs they wrote. How many, many, many songs, the tens and tens and tens of millions of copies of albums, let alone, uh, you know, 45s that were sold in, in those days. And yet this song gets a Grammy. And it's not even known as one of their, you know, most popular uh, songs at all. And all of it, I think, just tells us how deep a chord the song struck in people. How, how it resonated with all of us before we come to know the Lord, and, and uh, that uh, how familiar this, uh, all of us are with this thing called loneliness. Uh, McCartney, he declared that the song came out of his interaction as he, uh, as he meditated upon his youth, his interaction with two uh, elderly women in, in his childhood. And then you you go from 1966 and you fast forward 52 years uh, to January 17th, uh, 2018. I saw this on my computer screen uh, that very morning, an article from the New York Times, which reported in the same vein that Great Britain has such a problem with loneliness that... Uh, the Prime Minister, Theresa May, appointed at this point a minister for loneliness in England and in Great Britain. And to appoint a minister uh, in, in the English government is not like being given the ambassadorship to Luxembourg. This is a significant position. There there were only 22 of these positions in the English government. And so for them to expand it is a very significant thing, and it speaks about how concerned they are within the country over the uh, negative effect of loneliness upon uh, upon people within within that uh, country. Uh, To be made a minister of of anything, uh, uh, and a minister for loneliness, it would be the equivalent of being uh, in a a cabinet-level position with uh, the President of of the United States. That's how high up it is. The article states that, uh, I quote, for far too many people, loneliness is a sad reality of modern life. Uh, The article went on to say, loneliness has proven to be worse for health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It went on to declare that it, is, it can be associated with a greater risk in cardiovascular disease, dementia, depression, and anxiety. The article said, and I quote, a young or old loneliness doesn't discriminate. And of course, we know all of it to be true. And it's an epidemic in the United States of America as well. But the solution to it will never come from the government It will never come from a government program. The solution to it begins with being reconciled with God and entering into a personal relationship with God, experiencing the reconciliation 
And then out of that reconciliation with God, allowing the Holy Spirit to now net me, network me into the relationships that are now found in the body of Christ and then beyond. It is no coincidence that the epidemic of loneliness that is going on in England or is going on in the United States of America is directly proportional to uh, the pushing back and the waning of, uh, of, of the Word of God and, and of the kingdom of God within both of those countries. The one that's going to explode uh, when, when, when God and a relationship with God and the Bible and these things are taken away from people's consciousness within the culture. It's all of it is absolutely uh, inevitable. And what the search is in all of it, the solution to all of it is this relationship with God. And then when that gets taken care of, as I said, then now we're introduced into the body of Christ and God begins to, to unite us into significant relationship within the body of Christ. And the loneliness then is, is, uh, is taking care of it in its deepest sense within our lives. And it not only, this, this reconciliation, not only does good in, in our own life, but then it does good in the lives of others as well as we allow God to accomplish that within us. And how does all of this occur? How does a person receive this into their life, this great gift of reconciliation? Who can describe it, a relationship with God? I walk up to somebody on the street and say, I've got a relationship with God. They probably think I'm mad unless they're a Christian or they know something about the Bible. I mean, the marvel of it, really, when you stop and think about it, I have a personal relationship with God that not only am I committed to, but God is committed to as well. And there's no richer thing to experience in, in all of, of life. And it's all there to be received by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then with that forgiveness of sins comes all of these other things uh, and, and uh, reconciliation as well. When Paul closes here in verse 11, and uh, he describes all of these things, this reconciliation as a cause to rejoice in God. It's something to, be, to enjoy in God. Our reconciliation is intended to be enjoyed. This relationship with God is to be enjoyed. I think sometimes people look at the Apostle Paul, and they think he's a stoic. He's unemotional. He just, you know, he's got a big you know, big, you know, head, uh, forehead that he can bust through walls and all of this kind of thing. But it, that's a complete ignorance of the Word of God. The Apostle Paul not, was filled with joy and the joy of his salvation. And he, and he called on us to, you know, to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I, I say rejoice. His, his entire relationship was marked by joy. And, and as he speaks here, he wants our relationship to be marked uh, with him by joy as well. There's a certain kind of person who, who believes that, you're, uh, um, that if you're not suffering in, in a personal relationship with God, then you're not doing it right. And, uh, and, and I know the attraction of that kind of a view, but it, it is absolutely bad advertising for Christianity. This reconciliation is something that is to rejoice in, and it is uh, to be enjoyed. All of these things that he's written about are cause for joy. Peace with God again, access to God, the hope of heaven, godly character, confidence in the love of God for us, saved from God's wrath, 
reconciled to God. And both God and Paul desire us to enjoy our relationship uh, with God and uh, enjoy being a Christian. Uh, tonight, we're going to spend some time enjoying that uh, this evening. In the second Sunday of, uh, of, uh, of each month, we make the focus of our service the Lord's Supper and, uh, on that evening. And so tonight, we're going to spend in kind of a response time related to what we're looking at here this morning, a response time to just rejoice in this reconciliation and all of the other blessings that are ours as Christians. Our last uh, Sunday night, 242, was uh, the one in December was a, a great night. We celebrated Christmas with a night of worship. And then in January, we spent a significant block of time in prayer and then enjoyed the Lord's Supper on, at the the end of that, and that was fabulous as well. But tonight, all of it given over to just worshiping the Lord and celebrating and, and, uh, and deepening in this, this reconciliation, just celebrating our reconciliation uh, with God. Tonight at 6 o'clock, and each of you are invited. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, he's, he's the end of your search. You're made for a relationship with God. And until you're doing what you've been created to do, how can anything satisfy? I mean, it's just so easy and so simple and it makes so much sense. And I say this all the time to close up morning services. And a lot of times I'll speak it at night. You say, do you ever get tired of, of saying it? No, I don't. No, I don't. Because I can remember to this day what it meant to be empty and lonely in life. Deeply empty and lonely, even as a child, even as a young person, acutely aware of it. I know what the search means. I know what it is to try and live without these needs being met within a person's life. So no, I never tire of throwing that line out so that maybe someone or two or some five people who've never heard it before in their life, yes, I've been created for relationship with God, and of course nothing in this world will ever satisfy me until I'm in that relationship. And if you'd like to begin that relationship this morning, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to receive that gift of salvation this morning. Let's stand together now, and we'll pray. Father, I guess one way to look at this list of things in verses 1 through 11 of all of the blessings that are ours to help us fully appreciate them would be to go one by one through them and then consider our lives if any one or all of them were removed from our hearts and our lives, Lord. And what, what a miserable, miserable existence uh, would ensue. Thank you, Lord for our Savior. Thank you for the salvation that you've provided to us in him. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins, and thank you for all that comes with that, Lord. And this morning, we thank you especially for delivering us from the emptiness of life apart from you. We can still taste it, Lord, so thankful to be delivered out of that. And we thank you this morning for the relationship that we have with you. We know what your relationship, our relationship uh, with you means to us. 
us, Lord, and we're humbled that it's something that you care about and that you're jealous for as well. Thank you for the reconciliation, the reconciliation that puts everything in place. We bless you for providing it. We bless you, Lord, for doing so in your Son, and we bless you in his name, in Jesus' name.